Today from the Global Lane, China flexes its muscles sending warplanes over Taiwan. After Afghanistan, can Taiwan depend on the USA? If we allow China to take Taiwan, we probably are not going to have any more friends in the world. Racist United States? A former slave wants BLM and critical race theory advocates to look at what's happening in Africa. They need to understand that slavery still exists. Supply chain bottlenecks may prevent Christmas gifts from arriving on time. These have happened before, but it's never happened like this. And some good news about the bad news about Baptists and Catholics. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. China is ratcheting up tensions with Taiwan. In recent days, sending more than 100 warplanes on flights violating the island's airspace. Joining us to provide some insights is author, columnist, China analyst Gordon Chang. Gordon, it's good to talk with you again. So is this just a game of cat and mouse or is war coming? I think it could be a little bit of both. Um, a lot of people say, well, this is just China trying to show off because uh, this started um, in an intensified phase on Friday which was uh, China's national day, marking the 72nd anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic. What I'm concerned about is that when we don't push back, even though this might be just chest beating, China thinks it can do more. And when it thinks it can do more, it moves much further in a much more provocative way, which means that it does then start to really create danger in the, situ in, in this, in the region. And that's largely because they're doing things which people have to oppose. So, for instance, we've seen dangerous intercepts of uh, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force in the global commons. One of those incidents could go wrong. And clearly, one of these incidents directed against Taiwan, that could go wrong as well. All it takes is one shot, right? One wrong uh, step. So if China's, in fact, emboldened by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, what else, Gordon, has given the CCP a little more courage to flex its muscle? Would General Milley's uh, phone call have something to do with this? The one that he made last January, of course, to the Chinese general, informing him that he'd be notified uh, before any U.S. military action against China? Yeah, I think that General Milley's two phone calls, the one in October and the one in January, um, also reinforced in the minds of uh, Chinese leaders that the U.S. is in terminal decline and cannot oppose China. Um, so, I think that what it did was essentially uh, told the Chinese regime that they can do what they want. And, and also what has really been of concern, Gary, is that um, especially after the fall of Kabul, we have seen the Biden administration generally go soft on China. Um, and that could be for a number of reasons. But I think that that also would uh, embolden the Chinese because they, again, believe that we're not standing up to them. While America sends Taiwan military hardware, I know the United States has no defense treaty with the island. So how likely is it the, that this administration will defend China if it does invade, defend Taiwan? That's a great question. Um, and we don't know the answer to that um, because we don't have an obligation to defend Taiwan. And as you point out, we don't have a mutual defense treaty. And this administration is not inclined to engage in talks leading to one. I know China President Xi Jinping seems determined to reunify Taiwan with the mainland, either peacefully or by force if necessary. Why is Taiwan so important to him? Why is the CCP determined to, quote, take all necessary measures to resolutely crush all attempts at Taiwanese independence? 
I think there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, you know, in general, Xi Jinping believes in what he calls reunification and what Taiwan calls unification, because the People's Republic has never ruled the island. Um, and it, it, you can look at this in the context of the unresolved Chinese Civil War, but the people in Taiwan now believe that they are not Chinese. So, you know, I think from Xi Jinping's point of view, um, he wants, uh, you know, he believes that China has a right to control all sorts of territories. He's even propagated the notion that China is the only sovereign state in the world. So you can see that he's the most aggressive leader in history. But there's one other thing. And right now there is political turmoil at the top of the Communist Party. Xi Jinping's policies have not worked and a number of people are attacking him. And so I think that Xi is sort of lashing out. And finally, Gordon, no one wants a war with China over Taiwan. So how would military action there affect the United States and the world? Well, from since the uh, middle or end of the 19th century, we Americans have drawn our Western defense perimeter off the coast of East Asia. And Taiwan is in the center of that line where the East China Sea and South China Sea meet. And that means it is critical to our defense. But even more important than that, we have um, a Taiwan, a vibrant democracy. China is attacking not only our democracy, but the whole notion of democracy. So we cannot allow China to take over any democracy, especially as one as important as Taiwan. After the fall of Kabul, our allies and friends have been disheartened. If we allow China to take Taiwan, we probably are not going to have any more friends in the world. It's that important to us. Okay, Gordon Chang, thank you for sharing your time and insights with us today, Gordon. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. The U.S. President Abraham Lincoln freed slaves. Today in Africa, a former slave wants to be president. Former slave Bol Guy Deng has declared his candidacy for president of the world's newest nation, South Sudan. He joins us today from Nairobi, Kenya, along with the CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. First, Mr. Deng, thank you for being with us. Many of our viewers are unaware that slavery still exists today in many parts of Africa and the Middle East. Briefly uh, summarize your story. How was it that you became a slave? Uh, thank you for having me, and I want to thank your audience for listening. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Bolgai Ding. I was a slave in 1987 as a young boy in my village. There was a government of Sudan declared the uh, war against the rebel of South Sudan Christian, majority Christian. I became a victim of that because they took me and uh, very much they beat up the majority of my family. Uh, I was this kidnapped. I was taken with more than 700 kids. Uh, walk, walk 25. Uh, 250 miles all away from the South Sudan to North Sudan. And then I realized that I got sold in the market. And I did not realize that because I did not speak Arabic at that time. I used to speak only the Africa Denka language. And then I have to be beat up. I have to be told what to do. And sometimes they used to put the shame in my legs to the point where I have become so disciplined to my master. And then he gave me a little bit of assignment to go and give the cuddles water. Then from that escape, I managed to run to the capital of Sudan, which is the Khartoum. And then I got uh, received by the international organization, which is a uh, Catholic charity at the time. 
and then I ended up Khartoum, and then also with another problem that Khartoum was very much in Ponsar Assam bin Laden, the man who under uh, mastermind the 9-11, lived in Khartoum for six years. Then from there, actually, I went to Egypt. From Egypt, I got asylum to the United States in 1999. How old were you, Ball, when you uh, became a slave? I was around seven years old at the time. I was young, seven years old. And how long were you a slave? I've been a slave for three years. And as a former slave, I know you have expressed some concerns about the Black Lives Matter movement here in the U.S., also the teaching of critical race theory. What are you telling people? What's your concern? Uh, my concern is that they need to understand that slavery still exists uh, in Africa. Uh, we, have, we are talking about the 21st century slave, and I believe the Black Lama do not understand what's going on in Africa. They don't know what is going on around the world. In fact, the United States is the only country in the world that can give a slave freedom to become a congresswoman. You cannot find that in the world except in the United States of America. United States of America is the only country that can free you for a point where you can get a job, a decent job, and be a free man, a black woman, an African woman, and to become an African-American. Uh, I think they need to understand that the slavery still exists, and they need education, and they need to listen to people in my background that Africa today, more than 9.2 million are still in captivity in slavery. If you go to Libya right now, while I'm talking North Africa, a slave has to be sold for 400 U.S. dollars. A woman had to be sold for 400 U.S. dollars in the market in Libya right now. So that means that they need to open up to the world and know the Christ of slavery still exists in Africa and around the world. And many of those people that are advocating Black Lives Matter here in the U.S. and CRT uh, have never been to Africa. Sargas, it's good to talk to you again. You are in Kenya right now, so why are you there? It's good to be here, Gary. I'm actually here because we're doing our regional assessment of what is happening within the region here after the fall of Kabul. As you know, there's two strategic points for the U.S. and globally. One is uh, actually northern Iraq. The other one is here in South Sudan. And South Sudan now is a point where all the various different terror networks are focusing on, given the fact that the government is not strong and possibly not capable of holding that territory. Are they forming camps? Well, they, there's a lot of um, uh, weapons that move through here, especially through the refugee camps. You got the Somali influence coming in. Uh, since I've been on the ground just a couple of days ago, there was an actual ISIS attack in Sudan itself, trying to topple the government where 10 officers were killed. You had um, uh, immigrants that came here from Afghanistan that were captured uh, crossing illegally in southern Sudan. So we know that now it's becoming a focal point for them. Unfortunately, the worry is for the uh, regional governments, whether it be Kenya, Uganda, and others, that it is very possible that this will destabilize the ability of these governments also to secure and also economically develop the region. And Sargas, you know, many Christians in this country and others were elated when South Sudan became the world's 189th country, and it's been more than 10 years now. While there's been progress, tribal fighting, battles over oil, politics, all of that's ongoing, and the country still does not have an approved constitution. So what is your disappointment, and what can the United States, what should it do about it right now? Anything? 
Well, I know we've talked about it before, and we saw the fight that is taking place between the president and the vice presidency. But being on the ground and doing a much more of a deep dive, you realize that South Sudan is not run by politicians. It's really controlled by bodyguards. And you have a small core group of ten to 50, uh, 5 to 10 individuals that are really choking the effort of the current president being able to call elections, whether they allow possibly a change and allow him to face-saving measures to be able to depart the stage. So Mr. Deng, there are many divisions in South Sudan right now, Dinka and Nuer. Others are still fighting one another. How do you expect to bring people together as president? You know, I want to thank you and your audience as a Christian organization that we in the Christian community, we believe in love, we believe in peace, we believe in unity, and uh, my lab in America taught me so much to the point where if you live in the United States, you are an American citizen. And I believe that the same philosophy could be taking place in South Sudan in my leadership. I think what they need now is a good leader to understand that what is going on in South Sudan is the lack of the leadership and not its tribal line. And I believe that because my leadership right now, I have more tribal from minority tribe who are very much supporting me today more than ever before. Okay, from Nairobi, Kenya, South Sudan presidential candidate Bol Guy Deng and Neri Center for Strategic Engagement CEO, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Ngari. Thank you both for being with us. Are you hoping to buy that hot toy for a child this Christmas? Amazon says you better order now, otherwise you're likely to receive a message saying out of stock, limited supply, expect delays, and it's not just toys. There's a shortage of everything. Here to explain why this is happening and what we can do about it is Financial Issues National Radio and TV host Dan Celia. Dan, it's been a while, but we couldn't let this one get away without talking to you, so why is our supply chain in such a mess? Well, what happens with supply chains, Gary, is once we get uh, have a problem, we start creating bottlenecks. And the bottlenecks start to build up and creating another bottleneck further down the line of the supply chain. And it just continues to grow until there's some relief. And right now, we've got over 100 ships in the largest port in America, which is uh, in Southern California, uh, anchored offshore. And people think that, you know, it's the longshoremen, they don't have enough workers. I mean, certainly that is part of it, but it's really a problem globally, believe it or not, with trucks. Trucking industry is globally uh, in a bad way. So, the ports build up because the trucks can't get all the containers that are already in port out of there. So they can't bring more. And this is creating this huge bottleneck. So the ships that are anchored out there that have all of our, um, you know, sneakers and clothing and all the things that we're looking forward to maybe for Christmas are all anchored outside the port because there's no place to put the containers because the containers are, that are there are not moving. So it's really first and foremost a trucking issue more than it is anything else. The supply chain 
bottleneck started with manufacturing issues. They couldn't manufacture fast enough. And then we had a container bottleneck, those big shipping containers. A year ago, it cost $1,900 to use a container. Now it's costing $16,000 because they're using the container for storage on the ships and in the ports, and there's a shortage of that creating another bottleneck. Listen, this has all started gradually through the pandemic, the pandemic manufacturing shutting down, creating a huge need. The demand continued in some parts of the world. The pandemic lifted, demand is there, and all the bottlenecks can't get what needs to get where it's got to go. And it's just uh, a very, these have happened before, but it's never happened like this. And I don't see any end in sight until at least uh, the middle of first quarter next year. Everybody down at the wholesale area, the, where it's all starting, are saying very openly, they are passing all these expenses on to the consumer. They have no choice. So we haven't even begun to see the inflation that is going to come from all of this to get these products into the stores if we can, if we can ever do it. And I'm more worried about food getting to supermarkets than I am anything because that could be another problem. And another problem, Dan, is Biden's proposed $3.5 trillion budget. It's at an impasse right now on Capitol Hill and then raising taxes to pay for it. Your thoughts? Well, it couldn't be a worse time for all of that. Um, taxes are going to go up at the very same time. Gasoline prices are going up. $5 a gallon out in California right now. Um, we are going to see $4 a gallon uh, before the end of this year. It is uh, going to start going up dramatically. F inflation and monetary policy being squeezed by more and more debt is not the answer. We have an administration that really believes, I, at least they seem like they do, it's hard to believe they believe it, that we can get prosperity and an economy flowing by spending more money. Wouldn't it be wonder of Wonderful if you and I could get a richer household by spending more money. The government just That's keeps it. on spending, just do more and more. So Dan Celia, Financial right. Issues National Radio and TV host, it's always good talking with you. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be with you as always. Thank you. There's some good news about the bad news this week in both Nashville and Paris. First, the bad news. People in authority in the Southern Baptist Church in the United States have sexually abused church members, and some leaders have either looked the other way or have acted to cover it up. The same goes for the French Catholic Church. And the good news, the sin is being revealed, and full disclosure and transparency are coming. In Nashville, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention has bowed to pressure from church delegates known as messengers to waive attorney-client privilege, and that means investigators will be given access to confidential records involving sexual abuse allegations. Yes, full disclosure may lead to lawsuits and financial ruin, but Southern Baptists are doing the right thing. Meanwhile, in Paris, a report released this week by an independent commission reveals as many as 330,000 children were victims of sexual abuse within the French Catholic Church over the past 70 years. 
Two-thirds of the estimated 3,000 child abusers were priests. 80% of those abused were boys. Nuns also abused girls. Some reported they were raped with crucifixes. Folks, this is horrific. The theft of childhood innocence, violations that have caused unbearable trauma and lifelong scars. All of us should be outraged and grieved, not only for the French victims, but for the worldwide body of Christ. One French bishop described the revelations as more than shocking. He has a deep feeling of shame. Also, the president of the Conference of Bishops of France says many lives were destroyed. Uh, uh, in great difficulties because of a priest, and a priest is, is made normal, normally to, to help the life to, be, to, to grow and to be, to be better. Life wasn't better for victims like French actor Laurent Martinez. He was raped by a priest when he was just eight years old. The diocese moved the priest, but Martinez, he endured lasting wounds. I thought that it was all over because we never talk about it. But in fact, the, the, this trauma was inside me. Martinez says the trauma caused him to feel that intimacy with a woman was forbidden. The French Catholic Church pledges to monetarily compensate victims and to take steps against future abuse. Folks, for far too long, many churches have ignored and covered up wickedness in high places. The Great Commission requires all Christians to tell people about Jesus, to be salt and light. No one will listen if the body of Christ resembles the fallen world. And how can we be light if we live in darkness? Sexual sin must be exposed, not ignored or covered up. And let's not forget what Christ said in John chapter 8 after the woman was caught in adultery. He did not condemn her. Jesus said, go and sin no more. There must be a fear of God, a true turning away from sin, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And no matter the shame, no matter the risk of financial ruin, May righteousness and God's mercy, His grace and justice prevail. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.